John chapter 20, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to read uh, verses 24 through 31. We'll pray. I'll tell you how we're going to work through this passage, and then we'll work through it. So you follow along as I read. This is John 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after his resurrection. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger. And see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, there are many things that distract us. But at least for right now, only one thing is necessary, and that's to sit at Your feet, to be instructed from Your Word, to be ministered to by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that regardless of what situations are represented in this room here this morning as we gather and as we worship together in your word, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would be able to see Jesus. Perhaps not in the same way that Thomas did, uh, but to see him with the eyes of faith, and even in seeing with the eyes of faith to look forward to that day when we one day will see Jesus just like Thomas did. So give us understanding. Help us to find encouragement and conviction, whatever it is that our hearts and souls may need in this portion of your word. May we honor it. May it stimulate us to worship, and to love and good deeds. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So you can see the title up on the screen, From Sight to Faith, and From Faith to Sight. If you picked up some sermon notes, there we go, you have uh, this very lengthy, extensive, wordy two-point outline, Right? Thomas saw and believed, and then point number two, we believe, and one day we will see. Let me tell you how we're going to work through this passage. The, the, the first point we obviously draw from primarily this passage, this passage that we just read in John 20. The first half of the second point, we believe, we also get from this passage, but then we're going to kind of 
build outside of John to get the second half of point number two. Clear as mud, right? All right, so point one, Thomas saw and believed. We see that here in this, in this text. The text also says something about our belief, our faith, but then I want to take that and I want to see how this idea of Jesus' resurrection appearance to Thomas and the faith that it created, how that faith then is imparted to us. I want to see how that then connects to a couple other passages in Scripture so that we understand that we have more in common with Thomas than what we would necessarily anticipate. It's just that the order of events for us is exactly reversed. Thomas sees and believes. We believe and then see. Is that clear? Does that make sense? All right, you got to give me a nod of the head, not just so I know you, you get it, but so I know you're still awake, all right? Okay, here we go then. Thomas saw and believed. I was thinking as I was going over, uh, going over this passage and thinking on it, uh, some of you are probably familiar with uh, one of the old hymns that we have. Um, I'm not going to sing it, but the chorus line says some, uh, goes something like, He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Da, 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 da. He walks with me, He talks to me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. And what's the answer? He lives within my heart. Oh, that sounds so good, right? And then I started to think, I wonder what Thomas would say if that was the message that his friends told him after they had seen Jesus or claimed that they saw Jesus, right? Thomas walks into the room. Earlier in chapter 20, we have the account of Jesus appearing to all his other disciples, the ten minus Thomas, So they see Jesus, Thomas doesn't, and then when Thomas eventually is back with them, they say, hey, Thomas, we've seen the Lord, right? So you can picture the disciples saying, he lives, he lives, Jesus lives today. And then Thomas comes in at the end of that and says, how do you know he lives? How do I know that he lives? And they say, he lives in our hearts. Kind of falls flat, doesn't it? You can almost picture Thomas saying, right, he lives in your heart. Well, isn't that sweet? Now, this is, don't, don't get worried or anything like that. I'm not trying to wreck this song for you. The song is, is perfectly fine and good as it is. Just understand that as far as Scripture is concerned, he lives within my heart is not the first answer that you give to the question, how do you know he lives? And Thomas is actually on the right track, even though this one brief moment will live in infamy for the rest of history, right? Doubting Thomas. Thomas really probably deserves a little bit more credit than we, than we give him. Let me, let me just mention two things Two reasons why it's actually reasonable for Thomas to be so hesitant to believe the report that he gets from his friends. Friends that otherwise he knows are trustworthy. Number one is this. At this particular point in the game, this whole thing about what happens with Jesus, the crucifixion, 
the claim that he's the Messiah, all the things that they were expecting, all of that has been wrecked, right, and turned upside down. They have no category for a suffering Messiah. Everything that they saw in Scripture, the Messiah was someone who rides in to save the day. He destroys the enemy. He sets up his throne. He rules and reigns. He's not beaten and bloodied. He's not executed, stripped of all his clothing, exposed to the public like the worst of the worst criminals. Even that part, the crucifixion part, they couldn't understand And that was dying by, well, natural causes, right? Even more so, they had no category for a resurrection appearance. You don't need to turn there right now. We we just don't have time to do it. But if, if, uh, if you're taking notes and you want to jot down Daniel 12, verses 2 and 13, those are probably two of the clearest verses from the Old Testament that give you an idea as to what... Israelites or the Jewish people, if they believed in a resurrection, not all of them did, if they believed in a resurrection, here's what they believed. They believed that there was coming a time at the end of human history when God would raise the living and the dead, and He would judge all men. The righteous, His people, would go into the kingdom. All the wicked, the evil, would be destroyed and punished, and it would be a glorious day from then on out. They expect a resurrection to come, but the resurrection that they expect is something that all men and women are going to encounter, and it's going to happen at the very end of time. That was their theology. That was what they were thinking. There is no category for them at this point to think that a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, will happen midway through history for only one man. That that doesn't add up. It's going to take the teaching of the Holy Spirit and continuing revelation from the Lord to get them to see how the Old Testament bore witness to the very thing that they had missed for generations upon generation upon generation. All right? So that's one. All of the theology that Thomas would have had goes against the idea that one man in the middle of history would be raised from the dead. That's not what they were looking for. Number two... Historically, during this period of time, there were numerous, numerous messianic pretenders that came on the scene. Let me give you another reference. You can turn there on your own time. If you go to Acts chapter 5, towards the end of that chapter, Gamaliel, when they're trying to figure out what to do with these apostles who were preaching Jesus, he mentions two people by name, and he says, listen, we've seen this happen before, right? This one guy comes on the scene, we'll we'll call him Bob. Bob comes on the scene, and he claims to be something. He gets a couple hundred people to follow him, and then he's killed, and his followers end up scattering. And then a little while later, Joe comes on the scene, and Joe claims to be the real deal. And then he dies, and the same thing happens to his followers. They all just kind of fade off into the distance. So you put those two things together, and you can understand why Thomas is not really interested in hearing some flight of fancy, is not really interested in building his life on just simply a warm fuzzy, right? As he reads Scripture, Scripture, to the best of his understanding, has not prepared him for this, and he's seen in his lifetime, more than likely, 
many other men who, like Jesus, have come on the scene proclaiming or trying to persuade people that, they're the, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting on, and then hopes are dashed. And Thomas, at this point, is thinking, listen, this is painful enough as it is, right? We expected great things. It ended in disaster. Let's just be done with it and move on. Now, even though it's understandable that Thomas would feel that way, Still, we need to come back and say, and yet, even Jesus, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, mildly rebuked or chastised his followers who he called foolish of heart and slow to believe all that the prophets had said. You would tell him, didn't the Christ have to suffer and be raised again and enter into his glory? So, Jesus will come along and according to his testimony… There is enough here for Thomas to hook his faith on. Thomas may not think it's enough, but he should believe the report that he's hearing. If so, and if Thomas is so stubborn to say, I don't care what you tell me, I'm not going to believe. If you simple-minded people want to believe that hokum, go for it. I'm not a sap. I'm not a sucker. I'm not getting taken in by this. You want to tell me that Jesus is alive? I tell you what, the the day that I actually see him and I can stick my fingers into his nail prints and I can stick my hand into the side where he was pierced with the spear, when I can do that, when I can touch him and feel him and see him, that's the day that I'll believe that he's really alive. And until then, no amount of argument, no amount of persuasion or convincing is going to cause me to jump into your boat. You sympathize with Thomas, but yet at the same time, you see that there's a a certain measure of hardness, perhaps even pride, working here. So why would Jesus come then? Jesus doesn't owe Thomas anything. Couldn't Jesus have said... As he's watching, as he's hearing what Thomas is saying, you know what? It should have been enough. All his best friends saw me. He can trust them. If he's not going to believe them, fine. Let him wander off. And yet, what does Jesus do? Eight days later, he shows up again, and almost repeating verbatim his first appearance, he shows himself to Thomas. In what has to be a tremendous act of grace. Notice when Jesus comes in verse 27, 26 and 27, when he comes and tells all of them, peace, be calm, you don't need to be afraid, he turns and he looks at Thomas. There are others in the room, Thomas is the one that he talks to. One author has said Jesus could be relentlessly personal. Can you you see Thomas locking eyes with Jesus? Jesus is ignoring everyone else in the room, and he's looking dead at Thomas. And he says, Thomas, you wanted to touch? Come here. Come. Touch. See the scars. Feel the scars. 
put your hand here. This, this is not imagination, Thomas. This is not fantasy. This is real. As real as what the crucifixion is, the resurrection is just as real. Why does, why does Jesus do that? Why does, he, why does he make another appearance just for the sake of Thomas? Two reasons. We'll do the first one quickly, and then we'll move to the second one. Two reasons are this. One, just as he did with the other disciples, Jesus wants Thomas to know that the resurrection is a reality. The resurrection is real. Number two, in showing Thomas that the resurrection is real, not just imagination, not just wishful thinking, the real point in this is to drive Thomas to making a true confession. So, to know that the resurrection is real, here's what Paul has to say about the importance of a real resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if it's just now, if there's nothing beyond death that we hope for, we are of all men most to be pitied. See, in that sense, it's good that Thomas needs to know that the resurrection is real. Paul says, you need to know that the resurrection is real. Listen, cut through all this nonsense, people. When, when Easter rolls around every year and you get all these specials on, on uh, what is it, Discovery Channel and National Geographic and all this stuff, and people are explaining away the resurrection, right, as either psychosis or a social movement or wishful thinking or something like that, you need to come back and you need to consider that knowing the reality of the resurrection was so important that Jesus would come to one single disciple and say, if it takes you feeling the scars, come feel. And Paul would say, if the resurrection didn't really happen, we are not a noble people, right? We don't, look, we don't get the privilege of saying, well, even if the resurrection weren't true, Still, to live as a Christian is to live a noble life. Paul would scream and pull out what little hair he had if he heard that kind of sentiment. Paul would say, and the rest of the apostles would say, if the resurrection didn't happen, this means nothing. You're wasting your life. Which, by the way, if I can just insert something just for a moment. This is always been very convicting for me, just, for the, just hypothetically, let's say it could be proved that the resurrection didn't happen. Would you feel like you had wasted your life? If the resurrection were proved false, and you and I couldn't say, I would be devastated. My life would mean nothing. I think Paul says, you're not really living the Christian life. Your life, because of the resurrection, should be so reckless from the perspective of the world, should be so ludicrous, insane, 
that the world looks at you as if you're just throwing everything away, so much so that if it actually were proven that it didn't happen, you'd say, I'm the worst of fools. That's how rock solid the resurrection has to be. But in doing that, in bringing Thomas to the realization that the resurrection is true, that it actually did happen, that Jesus is alive, ultimately what this passage is driving at is the confession that Thomas makes. This is the climax of the whole book right here. And Thomas gets to utter the climactic words. He sees Jesus after talking all big and bad about how, no, it's not going to be until I actually touch him. All it takes is seeing Jesus. He doesn't have to go touch him. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And at this point, we've come full circle in the gospel of John. Because how does John start off his account of the gospel message? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And here we are at the end, and Thomas now, on his own, confesses in this climactic moment, because he is alive and no longer dead, this makes him Lord and God. Edgewood, you need to understand that the gospel message is not just about the crucifixion, about a good man dying for bad people. Yes, that's true. It's essential. It has to be there. But if the resurrection is not as real, is not as historically accurate as what the crucifixion is, the crucifixion doesn't mean anything. Anybody can suffer and die. Not anybody can come back to life. And if we understand what John is doing here, if we understand that John is trying to bring us to the realization that everything that's happened in his book is leading up to this moment to where Jesus is displayed before their very eyes as Lord and as God, then we have to ask ourselves, when we come to Christ, what is the nature of our confession? Who do we confess? What kind of person do we confess when we come to Christ? Or, perhaps this is another helpful way, when we witness to someone else and we tell them about Jesus, who are we telling them about? Are we asking them to come and to confess my career maker and my investor? Is that what Thomas is is saying here? Are we asking them to confess that Jesus is my marriage counselor and my parenting coach? Are we asking people to come to Jesus because we can confess that He is our relationship builder? Do Do you see what we're getting at? If... Your confession, if my confession, if the confession that we call on others to make is tied to those kinds of things, that's, that falls short of what John is pointing us to here. And here's the difficulty and the problem that comes with that. If my confession of Christ is not 
one who comes and says, my Lord and my God. If I come and my confession only goes so far as, yeah, he's a great man, he's a really great marriage counselor, that confession seems to fade away the minute that I begin to hit marital difficulties. And God help me if my marriage ultimately fails or if a spouse walks out on me because I was expecting that Jesus was there to fix that. And if my confession of him as my great marriage counselor isn't true, well, I don't, I don't want Jesus anymore. If, though, you confess Jesus to be your Lord and your God, it makes no difference whether your spouse walks out on you or not. He's still Lord and he's still God. And if you confess Jesus as your Lord and as your God, it makes no difference what your children are doing or not doing, whether or not they're good little boys and girls or whether or not they're hellions, because He's still Lord and He's still God. You lose your health, you lose a child, you lose a job, you lose security, whatever it is, He's still Lord and He's still God, and none of that changes with the confession depending on the circumstances around you. That's why in the climax of this book, John wants us to understand everything that's happened here is to bring us to this realization. So, if you're like me, you probably hear all that, and on, on part of you is wanting to nod your head. Yes, 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 okay, I, I see that, I, I know it's got to be true, and yet, right, there's that part of you that says, but gosh, I would trade places with Thomas in a heartbeat, right? Yes? Anyone seen the resurrected Jesus? Like, seen him as real as what I am in front of your eyes right now. Anyone had the opportunity to touch or to hear, maybe even to smell? He did it for Thomas. Why doesn't he do it for you? We want to believe. We want to believe more than what we believe right now. Come on, Jesus. You can do it. Why doesn't he do that? See, the tendency is to think, whether it's looking at the signs in the Old Testament or looking at the signs in the Gospels or something like that, the tendency is to think, man, those people had it good. There was, there was no doubting for them because they saw it with their own eyes. If I could see it with my own eyes, I would never waver. I would never doubt. I would never stray. Stumble every now and then, right, because we're not perfect. but I wouldn't leave. We have far too high an opinion of ourselves to think that way. Look at what we see earlier in the Gospel of John. John tells us this is after Jesus has done a series of miracles, the most recent one being raising Lazarus from the dead. John says, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They saw him feed thousands of people with scraps. He turned water to wine. A man that had been born crippled 
was instantaneously raised to walk. A dead man was called out of the tomb, and he comes walking out of his own volition and on his own strength. And after all of that, John says, the majority of the people still didn't believe. Why do you, do you think that we're so different that if we saw all these things, our response would be, would be greater? Or how about this one? This is from Luke's gospel. This is a parable that Jesus gives about this poor man, Lazarus, who's sitting outside of the rich man's house. And the rich man never gives him any comfort. He dies, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to heaven, whereas the rich man is suffering in torment. And towards the end of the parable, it says this, and he said, this is the rich man suffering in torment and in judgment. He said, I beg you, Father, talking to Abraham, that you send him, this poor Lazarus man, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Dramatic pause, there we go. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Scripture would have us understand that our hearts are so desperately wicked apart from Christ that even if He were to appear to us in the flesh, that is no guarantee that we would bend the knee and confess like Thomas, my Lord and my God. In actuality, the fact that Jesus would appear to Thomas and yet not appear to us, he does that not just because he's thinking of Thomas, but he does that because he's thinking of us. When Jesus appears to Thomas, he's looking down the corridors of the future, looking down the corridors of time, and when he looks down as he's appearing to Thomas, he sees you and he sees me. And he says, this is why I'm appearing to you, Thomas, so that your faith can be established and because there are others that have to come to faith too. Right? Did you see what Jesus said? Go back to the text. In John 20, verse 28, after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And then notice what John does. Right on the end of this, this big climactic scene, notice how John ties all this up in verses 30 and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, these including this appearance to Thomas, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Do you see what's happening here? John is making it clear that the reason that Jesus appeared to Thomas was so that Thomas would be able to believe and confess, this is my Lord and my God. And then John turns around as if to us and says, and the reason that I wrote this down is so that you could stand side by side with Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. 
Because your hearts are far too weak and far too fickle to be left to the chance of your personal experience. There needs to be a greater authority that speaks to this real event such that you can be as certain about the resurrection as what Thomas himself was when he saw Jesus. The greater authority that we have, the authority that says the resurrection is real and it's worth basing your life on, it's worth building your hopes and dreams on, is in a book. See, we're so tempted, so tempted to think, if only I could experience it empirically, right? If I could touch it, see it, taste it, hear it. All of the problems would be done away with. Thomas got to see, and all I get is a couple dozen lousy letters. This quote by Lewis is very helpful, I think. Lewis is talking about the fact that in the Christian life, by necessity, we take our faith by a word of authority because we weren't there to experience the ministry of Christ. And Lewis says this, don't be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means believing them because you've been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there is such a place as New York. I haven't seen it myself. I couldn't couldn't, I couldn't finish this quote now. I couldn't prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman Conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you would prove them, as you would prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. A man who jibbed, that means like balked or hesitates, a man who balked at authority and other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. You live every waking moment of your day, we do, based on the authority of other people. Is it so much of a stretch to think that God would say, and now based on my authority... I want you to live in light of the resurrection. Our day-to-day lives, our planning, our schedules are based on authority far less than that. But as great as what Lewis is, it's always better to hear it from Scripture, right? Because Lewis was good, but he's not Scripture. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, and verses 8 and 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you know what Peter is saying there? He's saying, Thomas saw and believed, you believe now, and soon you will get the same kind of revelation that Thomas got. You'll get to see too. A little bit further in verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, implication being not now, but you will. You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then one of my favorite, favorite passages when it comes to the authority of Scripture. Peter says this in his second letter, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Right? Pause right there. That's what Thomas does not want. He doesn't want cleverly devised tales or myths. He wants to know that the resurrection is real. And Peter says, listen, everything that we've told you is real. It's fact. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Four. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born, uh, was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's referring to the, the transfiguration. Peter says we saw it. And then notice what Peter says, and we have something more sure or more certain. More certain than what? This is important. More certain than what we saw with our own eyes is what you have written down in this book. That is staggering. That Peter says, yes, eyewitness accounts, being there, seeing, hearing for yourself, all of that is important. It's necessary. It grounds our faith in historical reality. But he's writing to these people who didn't see anything like Peter saw. And Peter says, you have even greater reason to be confident in your faith because you've got the Word of God sitting in your hands. And on the authority of God, the Word in writing, you can be just as confident in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ as what we were, as what we are. People, do you, do you understand, do you recognize that if this is the case, we are not second-class citizens of the kingdom? We have a privileged status. Jesus says so. Thomas... Do you believe because you saw? Because you see me now, do you believe? Blessed are those who do not see but who will believe. He speaks that over you, Christian. 
He speaks that over you and over me and over this church and says, you're favored that you're in the here and now and not back then. You're favored. There is blessing. There is reward in the fact that you believe even before you have seen. Because believing before you've actually laid eyes on your object of faith is a greater sign and a greater mark of a work of God. But people do not miss this. Blessed are those who do not see and yet who believe. The blessing that Jesus speaks of is a blessing, yes, in part that we enjoy now, but ultimately a blessing that we're to enjoy that's coming to us in the future. We are not second-class citizens. We have a privileged status in the kingdom of God because of where we stand in the history of God's redemption, in the history of God's revelation. And because of the fact that God has placed us here and now and has given us the blessing of believing without seeing him yet, he says, and when you do see me, your reward is going to be great. I have something special for all of this this group of people, this mixed up, confused, beaten down, weary group of people called the church. Hold on to your faith. It has a great reward. The resurrection of Christ is given to us in the pages of Scripture so that we, along with Thomas and along with generations of other Christians, can confess boldly and confidently, my Lord and my God. And the resurrection, the appearance to Thomas, is given to us so that we would be able to hear with our eyes as we read Jesus speak to each and every one of us, Blessed are you for believing even though you haven't seen what you desperately want to see. This faith will not be in vain. All this other stuff, right? This stuff that's seeable, that's touchable, all of that seems like it's most real. Don't fall for that. The realest reality we have not even seen yet. What is most true, we haven't laid our eyes on. We haven't heard. But one day we will. Thomas's faith is created by his sight. Our faith will one day lead us to sight. Let's pray. Father, how good you are to us that we can see here in black and white, written down for all the ages, that to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who confess him as Lord and God as Savior, 
and that do so without the advantage of being able to see his physical presence, that there is a great blessing in it for us, that we are not second-class citizens, that we have privileged status in the kingdom of God because of you bringing us into existence in this time, in this place. Father, I pray for each and every person in this room, that for those Christians who are here who have already made that good confession, that you would continue to grow them and ground them in the reliability of your word, that they would be certain beyond any shadow of a doubt that they would be rock solid in their faith, and that in their witness, in their testimony to others, that they would joyfully invite others to make that same confession, that Jesus is Lord and God. Father, for those who are here this morning who may not have actually experienced that eye-opening moment where with the eyes of their heart, they come to see Jesus as Lord. Would you give them sight? Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you cause the words of Scripture to be burned into their heart, that it would give them no rest until they lay their lives at your feet. And Father, until that day comes, we will be content to walk by faith, and yet we want to acknowledge and admit that we so desperately want to see the reality of our faith. Thank you for giving us that hunger. Would you cause that hunger to grow so that more and more we consider the things of this life to be pitiful in light of the eternal reality that one day will be brought into our vision. We thank you for Jesus, who has made all of this possible by his work on our behalf, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.